this week on the Back Table Podcast. This is about as basic as it gets, other than maybe like a thyroid nodule biopsy. What do you think? I think this is more basic than a thyroid nodule biopsy. <laughs> I think this is the bottom of the talent stack of IR. Wow. Wow. Maybe that's why it's my favorite. <laughs> it's so, <laughs> it's so okay. mindless. It's so mindless. To me, this is as mindless as it gets. But I get so excited to get a nice big chunk of bone out. That's winning the game. You just get a nice, big, robust sample. It looks like a mealworm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable MSK Podcast, your source for all things musculoskeletal. You can find all previous episodes of our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on backtable.com. Today, I've got another special episode. These are some of my favorites, just me and Chris geeking out on basic topics. Those of you who may remember, we've we've covered, even going back to episode one, actually, this was episode one. This was episode one, one. exactly. Of Backtable was bone marrow biopsies, and we are going to do a, a redux, right? A part two, I guess, or a evolution of over the last five years. That was 2017, so it's six years. Yeah. Well, definitely needed. And I mean, to go back and listen to episode one, it's a little bit painful. So I'd rather just re-record something about no, bone marrow biopsies. Yeah, yeah. Please do not go back and listen to that episode. In fact, we need to strip it from the record. Yeah, yeah. But also, like I'll say, like I feel like I've kind of changed my tune a little bit about bone marrow biopsies. So happy yeah, to, no, I'm to, excited re- to hear, restate. Exactly. I'm right excited to hear about that. And, and um, we also, I don't think we did this on the first one, which was just walking through how you do the procedure. We were mostly at that time, focused on like the actual device aspect and you know, the pros and cons. And that's the way we did things in the beginning. But uh, we, we do want to get more procedural information out there for people who, for example, and, and I think I said this on the very first episode was I didn't do one bone marrow biopsy until I started practice, not one in training, in residency, in fellowship. And then, you know, day one of practice, of course, there's like three of them on the schedule. <laughs> And one of the more senior partners in the practice were like, come on, let me show you. See, you know, see one, do one, teach one is what it was the uh, principle back then. But I don't think we, I don't think you can get away with that anymore. I think you got to kind of be proctored a little bit more on, on even the basic stuff, right? But this is about as basic as it gets, other than maybe like a thyroid nodule biopsy. What do you think? I think this is more basic than a thyroid nodule biopsy. <laughs> I think this is the, this is the bottom of the talent stack of IR. Wow. Wow. Maybe that's why it's my favorite. <laughs> it's so, <laughs> it's so okay. mindless. It's so mindless. It's, it, this is, to me, this is as mindless as it gets. Yeah. But I get so excited to get a nice big chunk of bone out. You know, like that I think is the game. That's, that's winning the game. You just get a nice big piece, robust sample. It looks like a mealworm. I, you know? I, yeah, I want to say like it's reluctantly, I have to say that's a little bit satisfying to get like a, you know, <laughs> you drive down, like get a, a really nice core. So that you that is that, okay. You get that ooh from the cytotech where they're like, oh, that's yeah, that's yeah, better yeah, yeah, than yeah, your yeah. partner. You this know? is true. This is true. Yeah. So anyway, let's jump into it. So first off, Chris, why are we doing these? Why? Are, what's the most common indications that come across our plate when we're getting a consult to do a bone marrow biopsy? For me in my practice, it's anemia. Um, a majority of our bone marrow biopsies are outpatient. Not that we don't have some inpatients, but it's usually an anemia workup. And, you know, honestly, 
I know that, like there's a big drive to make interventionalists more clinical, and I, I totally agree with that. This is not one of the spaces in which I really thrive in terms of like knowing all the ins and outs. Like basically, if the oncologist refers me a patient for a bone marrow biopsy, I'm gonna do the bone marrow biopsy, right? Like I don't see these patients in clinic beforehand. I don't see them afterwards. These are just like one-off procedures where I'm very much like a, a technician. And although I do look at the indication, I want to make sure that jives with why the patient's being referred over. But most commonly, I see like some form of anemias or leukemia lymphoma workups. Yeah, or like thrombocytopenia, something hematologic, right? The hematologic abnormality or, you know, concern for hematologic malignancy. And we're just obtaining hematopoietic cells, basically, from the source, right? So I guess rarely, I think that we've gotten it for stem cells for like tissue, purpose of tissue reconstruction, but that's very few and far between. I've never done that. Or if, if I'm doing that, like I don't even, you know, sometimes the, what they... What they put on the referral sheet sometimes isn't always like what they're working up, but I, I've never seen like, you know, obtain stem cells. Yeah, it's, I mean, you're right. It's more f- around, it's definitely more, I mean, I, I've had, I've known friends and relatives who've had it done for that reason. Oh, cool. For for me, it's more uh, like, just like you said, anemia, workup for leukemia lymphoma sort of thing. And uh, most often coming from the hemonc docs for the most part. I think all mine are from Hemonk. I can't think of maybe nephrology every now and then. Maybe nephrology. Maybe. Yeah. Um, they're working up some sort of systemic process, right? Okay. So, and then where are you most, well, let's, before we get into where, let's talk about what's the conversation like with the patient, because you'll see the patient, you know, usually they're waiting outside a CT or they're waiting outside the Rarely have to maybe go up and talk to them in the family before, or especially when they're uh, outpatient, you go talk to them in the waiting room to get consent. Uh, what's that conversation like? So one, like it just seems like such a terrible setup to have to go talk to the patients out in the waiting room. Like, is that where you have to talk to your patients? Sometimes. I mean, when it's an outpatient, there, there's a rule at one of our hospitals where you, if they're getting sedation, you have to see them in their pre-op waiting area. Oh, okay, but it's like a it's like a pre-op area, like there's a bay or something. Pre-op, right? like, yeah, it's a bay. Oh, exactly. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, they, never mind. That, that seems just, okay. It used to be they just wheel them back and talk to them right at the bed, you know, before they jump on the table. But uh, you know, a lot of that's changed now, um, and so we, they want to make sure that they're properly talked to. All questions are answered. It's not like a speedy like get them on the table and get them done. You know, I actually kind of like that. I, I like I like the. I, I was thinking for some reason you're out like in the waiting area where before they get called in, but like you, you have like a, a dedicated area where they're like they're on the monitor or something, or like a nurse has already seen them. Yeah, because I'm. All, I mean, these are pretty much 100 percent of the time getting sedation in my yeah, practice. Yeah, yeah. yeah, same. Yeah, so we also see um, them back. We we I think we just call it like pre-op holding. I'll go do uh, a brief H&P and I'm just checking for labs, sedation, uh, basically uh, risk stratification for sedation, which we also use sedation, not always, but maybe 90% of the cases and, you know, checking for allergies, like just a basic, very standard H&P and a brief physical exam. And then the conversation, which the conversation, the informed consent is what takes up a majority of the time. And what I really try and do is briefly talk about the risks. I, I think the risks are low, so I don't want to oversell it, but I, I do like give a nice informed consent. But then I spend a fair amount of time talking about the sedation and just managing expectations about what that's like, only because at least in my experience that 
there are certain patients that are expecting like zero pain. And sometimes that can be a little bit difficult due to the speed of this procedure, right? Like you don't have all the time in the world to get the the anesthetic on board to where it's an absolutely painless, like you're totally out procedure. So I just do a little bit of expectation management in that regard. So a lot of the conversation, a little bit of, I mean, not a little bit, full informed consent, brief, but then a lot of time talking about, you know, how this procedure is going to feel, how it's going to go, how much time it's going to take and the recovery afterwards. Totally agree. I think that that is the key, a key piece of doing this procedure is managing those expectations because some people think, oh, I'm getting anesthesia. I'm going to be out. I'm not going to feel any pain. Right. And, and you're, you're exactly right. That's why I tell the patient, I say, look, the advantage of doing this here with us and not in the office with the hemonc doc is that you're going to get sedation, which means that you're going to be much more comfortable than just local anesthetic in the office, right? Because that's the way they do. That's the way they do them in the office. They're not, I mean, they might give them a little bit of an anxiolytic, but that's it. They're not doing sedation in the office. And so what I like to tell them is, hey, you know, show them where we're going. Like, right, you know, you can feel that big posterior iliac spine in the back. I said, that's a nice big chunk of bone to, uh, and it's very superficial so we can get to it easily, but we do use imaging guidance, right? And that helps speed things along. And because of how fast the procedure is, it is challenging to get you completely asleep. So the goal is for you to just feel pressure. Um, if you know, you can feel pressure, uh, while we're doing the procedure, you'll hear us talking, but you know, before you know it, we'll be done and we'll be getting you back in your room. Uh, and I think that people, like that. It's like offering one thing over another. It's like, okay, I'm not going to be full of sleep, but at least it's fast and I'll be getting out of here fast. Right. They seem to kind of like that. Well, you, you must be just a, a better negotiator of people than me because like, I, I think though it's, I feel like in my practice, we're a little bit teed up for failure and that the oncologists almost universally tell the patients that they were going to be completely asleep. And also because like in, in where I'm at in New Orleans and the suburbs of New Orleans, a majority of these are still done by oncology and maybe uh, some pathologists who aren't using sedation. And so there's like this small referral of like oncologists who are like, oh, you don't want to have it. You want it to be painless. Well, here, let me send you to interventional radiology where they're going to put you to sleep. And so these patients come with an expectation that it's going to be lights out. And I just find that that's a little bit hard to unwind, but you know, I do my best. And I, I think these patients are, you know, ultimately they just want to get this biopsy and move on. But there, there's a fair amount of conversation around that, that, yeah. And, and I really do like, I mean, we try to get on top of it. I'll, I'll sometimes give a cocktail pre-procedurally. I'm sure you have a cocktail too, which you use for like the pre-op holding area for some super anxious patients. Yeah. It's called Benadryl. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh, well, I do that. I, yeah. yeah. No, I, I like awesome. to make them sleepy with the Benadryl. And like, the, you know, we talked about that when with Vishal, which I, another episode I recommend people go and listen to because we're talking about a lot of the same things, right? Yeah, exactly. But I mean, throw a little Benadryl in there and like a lot of times they do just fall asleep and then they kind of just wake up. They kind of just wake up, you know, when you're, when you're getting that core and they're like, oh, okay, well that wasn't that bad, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like the Benadryl, Ativan slash Valium, and uh, Zofran combo. Okay, yeah, and Zofran's always good too, right? So, yeah, man, I, I mean, I think, look, that, that is the one of the most challenging parts of it because, like, technically, we're going we're gonna to talk through that. Technically, it's not a very challenging procedure. It depends on what tool you're using, but, you know, in terms of getting a good sample. 
but the 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 pain thing I think is key. And what's nice, what you were just talking about is how sometimes these patients have already had one done in the office and they have that to compare to. That's fantastic because then you're like, well, this is going to be better than that. I yes, can hear exactly. That. This you know is better mean? than that. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they're, they're, that usually makes them happy, even if they were expecting to be lights out. It's just like, look, I can make you lights out, but that's going to keep you here another hour afterwards. So what, what would you rather, you know? Well, it's just been, I mean, if I could make people lights out, I would. It's, it's not that I don't have the patience to do it, but I, I just find that the hardest patients to get to fall asleep are the patients who want to be asleep and like are, and are very, very wound up about it. Like, and it just, that's just my experience in my patient population, but those are the patients that tend to fight it. And they're like, they'll keep telling you, they're like, I'm not asleep. I'm not asleep. I'm not asleep. We do a lot of tricks. Like we, we, we actually like, sometimes I'll do what's called the silent procedure where like, there's like minimal talking throughout the staff. Like, just like, there's no like external stimuli for there to them to anchor onto. We'll put a washcloth over the eyes, dim the lights, like a lot of things, like trying to keep the mood, like very like quiet and subdued. And sometimes that works, but yeah, th- these are all just like little anesthesia tricks. That, I mean, that's a good idea. I kind of go the opposite sometimes where I'm like, look, I'm here. I'm going to talk you through every step, right? I'm going to let you know when you can expect this thing and when that way there's no surprises because they are face down, remember? So that that, uh, that adds some anxiety. So I find, it, but you're right. I don't, I try to minimize like chat, like people talking about what they're going to have for lunch or something exactly. like that, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But um, I think that walking them through it being like, you know, here, I'm putting the light away now. Okay, here you're gonna feel some pressure here. That to me seems to help a little bit if they're if they if they are still awake, you know. No, I think you're right. I think there's some patients. Uh, well, I, I'll just say that there's some patients that want to hear it, and there's some patients that don't. But I agree with you. I think there's like definitely some patients. Like as long as you're talking them through it, and they know like all this is expected, then they're very okay with that. Absolutely. Right. They, they just don't. want things to go as expected, according to sure. plan. Right. Yeah. You're yeah. exactly right. For sure. Yeah. Um, that I think that is a good tip. So you've talked to the patient, you got them consented, they're ready to go. You got them on the table. You, you did the timeout, giving them some Benadryl. I usually start with one in 50 in a, in a, in a 25 of fentanyl and then one of Versed and 50, depending on the size of the patient. If it's a real big, if it's a big patient, I'll start with two and 50, especially um, since they're prone. And then I always check with the the cytotech because at our at our hospital, you know, I'm rotating at different hospitals. I think you do too. You probably know the cytotext really well because you're at a lot of the same hospitals. But it seems like even post COVID, there's been a lot of turnover, and I always want to make sure that I'm getting what they need instead of assuming what they need. Because some places they'll be like, "Oh yeah, I just need two of uh, non heparinized blood, you know, aspirated blood, and then give me ten with the with the the heparin." And then others, they're like one in five or and so I always ask them ahead of time. I don't know if that's something that you have to deal with. Well, we're I think we have a pretty steady stable of cytotechs. Um, so kind of know what they need, but I, I think that's a good idea. For some reason, if I didn't recognize the cytotech, then I would definitely check with them ahead of time. But we have a standard operating procedure and I just assume that's the case unless like they said otherwise. Well, that's good. And, and like for, the, for anybody who's new to this out there who's maybe never done this before and they're listening to this before they do it one, the reason I, I mention that is because for every procedure, what they need is usually an aspirate, one, some volume of aspirate of blood once you get the needle in that's um, non-heparinized and then some volume of blood that is heparinized and then you need the actual bone marrow biopsy sample itself, the actual bone. And those are like the three components of, the, of your sample, right? No, 
Agreed. But uh, well, actually, and but years ago, we actually gave up doing the heparinized no. um, aspirate. Yeah. And I, it was per pathology. And, you know, this is like one of those procedures where I take a lot of advice and guidance from my colleagues. If, if pathology tells me they need heparinized, non-heparinized, whatever, I'm like, sure, whatever you want. So I didn't question it. And so now we just do two aspirates. Yeah. Whatever they need. So, um, yeah, we do two aspirates, both non-heparized. But not, and those for the smears, right? Yeah, exactly. I guess five, like they just need enough to make five or six smears. And so I guess it just depends on the cytotech, how much volume they like. Uh, mine's usually between like five and 10 cc's. I've definitely like read on the SIR forum, like some people have like really gotten deep into the weeds on this and like they're very specific with all the amounts that they need. But for me, like if, if it's free flowing and I'm, I'm just getting like, you know, I can, I can get whatever I want. I usually do between five and 10 cc's to two syringes and give that over the cytotech. Now, sometimes whenever you're doing the bone marrow biopsy, people's, people's aspirate can be a little stingy. And so I think what's important though, is like, you don't spend 20 minutes trying to get to five cc's, you know, like you want to get it out of the bone into the syringe and like into the hands of the cytotech pretty quickly. Perfect. And I didn't mean to, it's for the audience. I didn't mean to jump ahead. I just wanted to let you know to, to really communicate with your the height of the cytotech before you get started because sometimes that gets dropped and then you, the last thing you want is your needles out and then they're like wait a minute I need more so that's that's a key thing so next step is okay what what imaging are you using are you doing it CT guided or fluoroscopic guided because this can be kind of a yeah I know this is kind of a sticking point for some people I'm not dogmatic our workflow is very much CT so 98 percent of the time I'm in CT. And if I'm not in CT, it's usually because like CT is so booked up and like, you know, it's some kind of, it's an add-on situation and I accept the patient and like, I, we're not going to be able to get into CT for, you know, whoever knows, like maybe it's down or something. So I will take them over to fluoro and do it in fluoro and I don't have a problem with that. Um, in fact, I'm on the record saying like with a lot of my partners, I think that I can do it like with certain patient body habitus, I'm pretty certain I could do it blind safely. But I always use some kind of imaging and uh, 98% of the time it'll be CT. Yeah. I mean, now that, you know, you've done, once you've done like hundreds of them, you can, you can visualize what the imaging looks like and your angle. And then there's tactile feel, right? So between those three things, you're right. I think well, once you've done enough. else is doing them without imaging. I mean, it's not like. I know. It, they're it's not, not even like radiologists. you're so off right. base. Right. Exactly. But it's just not like, yeah, once you do enough of them and then also with the, you know, the information that. Everyone else is doing them without imaging. It's just not like such a stretch before you're like, all right, I can do these without pictures. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. My my workflow has always been CT guided um, because that's just the way it was been done. Now there's one hospital where they have uh, cone beam CT available. So you could do it under fluoro and then confirm your needle positioning under cone beam CT. Let's just do like a real quick spin. And then that way, and then, but you know, the downside is, you're wearing fluoro or you're wearing lead, which I don't like to do. I like to not have to do that. And then the other thing is, is sometimes that getting that confirmatory cone beam CT can be kind of clumsy if the tech, you know, is you got a new tech that day or something like that. To me, it's just, it just works faster in CT and that's probably just familiarity and so forth. Hold on. But like, if you're using fluoro, I guess like I, I, I suspect that a lot of people who are using fluoro are not going to do cone beam. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mentioned that because that's the reason why some of the docs in my group 
use the fluoro is they're like, oh, they're like, well, I can just confirm my position with with the cone beam. Now, granted, they may not, they might just be comfortable doing it just under fluoro. And and that's totally fine too. Again, I don't, and I haven't looked at like the difference in radiation, but to me, it's faster in CT. Uh, just the setup and everything. Pretty fast. It's pretty fast. I imagine that's just a that's just number of reps, right? If I did if I started doing it in fluoro, like I'd probably be just as fast, you know. I think it, I think there's just a fast procedure in general. Um, but that being said, also like so this kind of gets into, well, I, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I'm interested to see how you do them and like how many CT pictures you're taking and how many fluoro pictures you take if you do fluoro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so it sounds like let's proceed with this doing under CT. Uh, because that's what you and I do, uh, and I think let's play what most people do. And it's the 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 needle placement is the same. It's just like what do you, how are you confirming your position with imaging? Yeah, you know what I mean. So how do yeah to walk through your CT guided bone marrow biopsy? Yeah, so patients are prone, although they don't have to be prone. I will say that you know it's not unreasonable to do a patient supine, and you can come at a different angle to the iliac crest. It's I think a little bit more challenging. Like I think you have more real estate to land that needle from prone position. So I go prone. I usually go from inside to outside. So I'm like the needle like follows along the trajectory of the iliac crest. I'll numb the patients up. And, and this is something I do that I think like helps me, one, keep my patients more comfortable and two, gives me kind of a feel for where that iliac crest is. So basically I do one CT picture or not one CT picture, but one scan with the grid on. And then I mark my positioning on the skin, numb that up. And then I also will use like a, a 22 spinal needle to... Basically, I like walk that spinal needle along the cortex and like I numb that cortex really well. Use a lot of lidocaine for this. But also what I'll do is I'll walk that spinal needle off the lateral edge of the iliac crest. So I'm like, all right, this is like, that's a, that's a safe area because like lateral, like you're just like kind of in soft tissue, right? And so like I have a good idea of the trajectory from the 22 gauge spinal needle and then dermatotomy and then with, you know, your biopsy device. Then I go in, land it on the cortex. And I kind of like, I don't just like go right in and just like, all right, I'm there. I'll kind of like walk it along the edge there and try and like find where it slips off the edge. I'm like, all right, that's too lateral. And then I kind of walk it back medial and then I'll seat it. And I'm actually not taking additional pictures after that. Like I'll seat it. And then now I use the the on control, the drill. I'll drill it in, take my aspirates, boom, take my bone marrow core. And then I come out, like, I don't actually get a CT picture with the needle, with the jam sheety or the uh, on control or whatever bone uh, marrow biopsy device. I don't ever actually have that confirmation picture. I do just that one pre-picture and that's it. I mean, that's great. I, it was ingrained in me at some point early on that you should always have, like, if you're doing a biopsy or something where somebody could question whether or not you were actually in a lesion, to always have that confirmatory picture. And, and, and that goes more for like, I think lesions than a bone marrow biopsy. I don't think anybody's going to, I mean, if look, it was, it was like your pathology was saying, but the lesions not in the, in the biopsy, right? Is that what he was saying? That I know the, I know, or the, I know the needle is in the lesion, but the lesion's not in the needle. Like exactly. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It's a reference to, in, reference yeah. to when I was interviewing a pathologist, like an old episode. Yeah. 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 And that, that episode's coming out soon. So people can catch that. But that is that is so true. So it doesn't really matter what your image shows because if if there's not adequate tissue, it's that's game over. Like you got to do it over again. You know what I mean? Exactly. Well, so what I will say is, I think it is absolutely solid IR advice that you need to 
especially when it's targeted lesions or really like basically everything that we do except bone marrow biopsies. My advice to trainees, younger IRs, older IRs or anybody is like, we need to have, you need to have a picture of you in the lesion or within very much striking distance. Like that is my standard operating procedure. So I do pre-pictures. I have pictures leading up to the biopsy, like as the, the needle's kind of inching along. I usually have one or two like with it, like seated in it. And then, you know, a post picture. But that kind of, for me, goes out the window with bone marrow biopsies. It just because it's like, okay, I know I'm in bone. I don't know. It's just silly to think like, what else would you be in? Like, you know, you can feel that you're in the bone. And then you're getting a bone out, like that's pretty confirmation for me. That or that's enough confirmation for me. I tell you what, before I when I was green, when I was first doing these, and before I had that sort of tactile sixth sense from having done them, not sixth sense, but tactile sense. Seventh sense. Seventh sense, yeah. Sometimes I would scan and I was in the SI joint, right? Because you can you can get you can slip, like you said, you can slip down and then you're like, whoa, that felt like bone, especially in demineralized like old ladies. Like you sometimes bone, it just feels like a knife, hot knife through butter. It just goes right through. And you're like, I don't know if I'm in bone or not. And that's part of the reason why I do a confirmatory. That's why. And I wouldn't, I don't fault anyone who does that. And I, and I don't disagree with that sentiment and, and also should walk that back a little bit. If there's ever a time where like, I feel like something's not right, of course I'll take a picture. And of course I'll treat it more like a targeted biopsy. If for some reason I'm having trouble, my game is a little bit off, or maybe it's just a long throw or whatever. But the way that I do it is like I basically find that lateral edge of the iliac bone. So you're not so I'm cheating towards the lateral margin. So I'm less likely to end up in the SI joint or like somewhere in the sacrum. And also like there's a depth difference. And so like I think that's like you have to have like a decent feel. Like once you do enough of these, you have a pretty good idea of like, all right, I'm hitting bone at this time. This makes sense. Rather than if you're hubbing a nine centimeter spinal needle and you're like wow i'm only barely touching the cortex and you look at your pictures and like all those things have to like make sense and there's just a lot of built-in knowledge to like understanding distances and where your safe zones are but that's why i was trying to like lay that out a little bit that i really like figure out that trajectory with the spinal needle like and very quickly you know i'm not like futzing around with this for too long but like understand where that lateral cortex is and that way I have an idea of how much distance I need. And then when I lay in that, the bigger biopsy device on the the cortex, I have a pretty good idea that I'm on like iliac bone and not so much like in the SI joint or something. But certainly like I will take pictures if needed. Yeah. And, and that's the whole thing, you know, because a lot of times it's tech. So just to go back to how many pictures, I think that's fantastic that you just do one at the beginning. I mean, that's what typically everybody does. One at the beginning to map out, plan out your trajectory and then get the needle seated and once it's seated, I'll, you know, I'll even just push it in just maybe like a half a, like a, just a centimeter. So I'm just past the cortex. So I know that like, I'm really, that's when I take my confirmatory picture to show, look, I was in the bone and then I proceed to do the rest of the procedure, get my aspirates and get your sample. Um, let's talk a little bit about the needles on the market, because when we first discussed this on episode one, we were talking about Jim Cheedy versus the on control. I know that you switched to the on control, which has been, that's, that was six years ago. Uh, it's pretty much dominated, I think, the market. Once everybody got it in their hands, they realized, okay, this is taking better samples. This is not sponsored by tel- uh, Teleflex or Uncontrol, but I still right. love we that needle. Send, we should send this to Telefix or Uncontrol. Like maybe they do want to sponsor. <laughs> well, look, I, I bring it up because there's actually a competitor out there now in terms of powered versus non powered. So 
when we talk about jam sheety or the snare coil, which is I think um, Mermaid Medical now, some of these other ones that like you, you just brute force. Those don't use a drill uh, or a power drill, and um, those are non-powered, right? I don't know anybody still using those. At least in my group or people I talk to, I feel like Jim Chidi is just—it's cheap. That's good. So maybe it probably is still around at small community hospitals who don't want to invest in in the powered. But I, I don't. I feel like once pathologists and intermediateologists, even diagnostic radiologists got their hands on on control, saw what great samples it takes. I think it's the conversion's been pretty widespread. BD, who actually makes the Jam Sheedy, just came out with their own powered version. Very, it's called the Trek. It's very similar to the On Control, you know. And and I got to I got to try it on like a sample bone. You know, the rep sales rep came by and yet I mean, it feels just like On Control. I don't know if there's any real advantages over On Control other than maybe it's price. I, I don't know. But uh, just to let everybody know, like there's there's another version by BD uh, in addition to Teleflex. These needles are crazy sharp and they, to, to me, if it's a, and, and that's the other thing that I do with that pre-procedure imaging is I look at what the bones look like. If it's a young patient, they're like 25 and their bones are dense, I'm gonna definitely going to be using the drill, right? Because that, that does improve the patient experience, don't you think? I don't know if it, maybe a little, maybe a little. Because it just makes it yeah, faster. Yeah, yeah, You're yeah, not yeah, like yeah. grinding sure, the sure, bone sure, in. Sure, sure. It's just like, and it's much faster. It can, that, now that can have an, a, an effect if the patient hears that drill. So that, that's the challenging part. That's why I use it sparingly because them hearing that drill can cause some anxiety. <laughs> okay. So I'll, uh, let me talk a little bit about that also. So I've, I'm kind of a convert. Like I was using the gem sheety system and now I use the on control and the drill. I think both of them still very much get the job done. Like I'm, I, but one of the main things, one of the main reasons I switched over was that getting a better sample, maybe a little bit better. Like I, that's hard to deny. Like I think the samples are, were better for me with the on control, but like at the same time, the gem sheety samples were totally adequate it, you know like it's like okay you're getting a better sample but does that really move the needle i mean you know like you're getting good samples out of both at least in my experience but one a couple of the reasons i like the on control better is or, or like a powered system better it's just way more fun i mean like like drilling at like and i use the drill 100 percent of the time like i just find like for me the drill was just kind of a a more fun way to do the procedure like it's it, it almost just kind of spice it up a little bit but like I'm, I'm kind of a power tool guy and so like i just like i got that drill and like i just gravitated towards it immediately but what i would say is like the gem sheety was still getting the job done and like i wasn't unsatisfied with it but it was it was it's just a lot more fun to using the drill and there are some patients like i found younger patients with like like sclerotic bone diseases like mastocytosis or something it's very nice to have that drill to get a nice sample like that. But that's like such a small percentage of patients. But at the same time, it was nice to have that in my back pocket. I've know I've read on the SIR forum about how, you know, people are, you know, you have a strong right arm and you can get the gym sheety everywhere. And I don't necessarily disagree with that. But for me, what what I would rather, and I'm, I'm kind of a, a hobbyist woodworker by nature. And so like, like, I think it's, slightly dangerous and i want to preface that you know in different hands but 
I don't like like using a lot of my force to like grind a needle into an iliac bone. Like to me, like if that slips off, that's whenever you can have like a major problem where like that needle goes somewhere you're not expecting it to go. Right. So I think or like it breaks. Yeah, or it breaks off. So I like yeah. I, for me, like I feel very in control with the drill. Like I can just apply a little bit of forward pressure and it still drills through that bone. But when I was using the gem sheety, I was very much a, a fan of the mallet. Like I think a mallet is a way to like deliver a lot of like controlled taps like into a bone. Yeah. So and and that's kind of like the woodworker in me. Like you don't want to like be leaning your body weight on this stuff. Like that right. that to me is like you're creating a bad situation. But like a nice mallet with the gem sheety, I think like still gets the job done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally agree with you. And and to go back to to me the most significant update was the sharpness of the needle and the robustness that really allowed for even if you were applying your own force it it was just it made it less force um and that's why for that control with the demineralize because what what worries me and is ex exactly the same lines of what you're just saying is when those you get those little old ladies that are demineralized who their pelvic bones not terribly big to begin with they're demineralized that's when the the power tool to me is a little bit scary and so I just use my own gentle force to get it in. And so for me, it's all about patient selection in terms of whether or not I'm going to... I use the exact same needle. The on-control needle is fantastic. It's a sharp needle. It's yeah, a yeah. very sharp it's needle. needle. And, and it has, you know, whether you use the power, you know, the, the drill or not, it takes very good samples, robust samples. You know, the other thing that I found comparing to the gym cheat, I may have mentioned this on the first one, was I just found myself having to go in less like i only have to go in once that's it whereas with the gym cheaties sometimes the sample or the snare coil sometimes would be really bad i'd have to go in two or three times because what i would get out the cytotech would look at it and be like this isn't enough can you go in again and that to me is super frustrating so when something that you know procedure that should be like five minutes ends up being 10 15 minutes long so that to me is the advantages i imagine the bd track is very similar I may get to try it, uh, depending on, you know, if one of these hospitals gets it in, but, um, that's why I'm a fan of these newer needles. I'm glad that they've evolved and, and updated over time. I agree. So I'm a fan of the on control. I don't fault people for wanting to use like a manual system at all. Uh, I was using that for a long time and I, I still think I got me totally adequate results, but just given the option for me, it's like way more fun. And like, even like an osteoporotic patients, like I don't find like, I don't find the power drill component of it. Like it's all about like the forward pressure. And like for me, like I just really dial back that forward pressure. And even though the drill is spinning, you know, it, without the forward pressure, it's not going to go any, or at least in, in my hands, I feel like it's not going anywhere I don't want it to go. So I, I feel very comfortable with it. And I agree, gives you very nice samples. And I think it is a little bit less fussy in terms of like positioning, like getting an aspirate back. Like that's also been a, an experience that I've had between the gym sheet and the on control. I've also used the uh, on-control needle to, this is a little bit off topic, but like sometimes like there's a, a lymph node, like a retroperitoneal lymph node or like a, a presternal lesion that like you can get to it a couple different ways, but I've actually drilled through bone on both ends. Like I saw drill cortex to cortex to go through a bone. And then like I use that as like an introducer to get like my biopens or whatever, like Timno needle That's to like fantastic, the target man. location. That's a great tip. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of something. And you know, depending on where you are, like people probably heard me mention the sternum and this probably like makes them a little bit queasy, like depending on how people feel about mediastinal biopsies. But I feel like in controlled hands, like very patient selection, sometimes that can be a safe way to get to where you want to go. 
Yeah, or if you have like a pelvic node that's like a, like an obturator node or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yep, yep. Yeah, that's interesting. Or like if you have to like, like I don't know if you've ever had like those psoas abscesses that are kind of like difficult to get to. You know, and sometimes like I'm not saying you're going to put a drill through or uh, um, you're not going to like put a drain through this or anything. But, if you know, you just got to get a couple if you just got to get a couple cc's or a sample for like cultures or something. You said bad that boy. would be incredible to have a drain through the iliac. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh right. my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. Don't do that, folks. Please don't do that because I can imagine yeah, no, it don't do that. snapping off. Somebody's somebody will do it. Yeah. I wanted to back up and talk about real quick. What do you do in, in terms of like you get a dry tap? Oh yeah. Then I I have a conversation with the site. It totally happens. So I try and so if I get a dry tap, I just say, hey, look, I'm gonna go ahead and get the bone marrow sample. And I get the bone marrow sample, and then sometimes they're just, and then I might just go a little bit deeper. And that's where you have to re-image and be like, okay, where am I? Sure, sure, sure. Make sure you're really, really in the right spot. Make sure really in the right spot. So I might try and go, I'll go deeper. And then what sometimes I'll do is I'll come back and I'll re-angle it and just try and maybe just get a different angle because for whatever reason, I'm in a, a dry area. Sometimes when you it's when it's dry right down the middle, if you go along the inner aspect of the cortex, not you don't want to collect cortex, but you want to get just deep to the cortex. Sometimes that's a little bit, you know, you, you, you can get an aspirate there. So it's really just re-angling, maybe going deeper. Usually that's the case. And then I just try and get as much out as I can. And if it's one CC or two CC, a lot of times the cytotech's like, hey, we got what we got, you know? Absolutely. Like if you get one or two CCs and, and you know, sometimes it's deeper. I was going to say blood from a stone, blood from a bone in this situation. So for for us, and I think my, my partners handle it differently, but I, I agree with you. Like I like a little bit of like needle repositioning, but sometimes you can tell like there's some bones that are like densely, densely scrotic that you have like an idea ahead of time that this could be potentially a dry tap, but I'll take a take that biopsy. So you take the, the actual biopsy without the aspirate. And I think our pathologist has always asked us to get two cores and so I'll do a core from the right and then I'll also take a core from the left and, and try and aspirate from like the different iliac bone. I, I'll just tell people that I, I've never had a situation in which I was not able to get one from the right and then I was able to get it from the left. Like I always thought like, oh, you know, maybe trying something different, you know, who knows, maybe, but I, I've never had a situation where it actually yielded me some aspirate. But that's kind of what I do. I always think like you've tried everything at that point. Yeah, I mean, I've only, it's only happened, like a dry yeah. is only happened to me maybe twice in the last like, eight, nine oh, years, that's 10 it? years. Yeah. Not very often. Yeah, that's I mean, good. very rare. Yeah. And so that's actually a great thing to do is just go to the other side. Yeah. I mean, cause like I, I couldn't take like a inside to outside approach. So I basically go from midline lateral. And so it's not, it's not all that hard. Sometimes like you're bringing the needle towards you and that that's, that's you know, not always ideal, but yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a little bit uncomfortable, but it's still very doable. Um, yeah. Especially if you got the drill. So no well, there's some people in my group that that's how they do their bone marrows, like angled towards them. I, I'm always like, that's, that's just so bizarre. weird. Yeah. It's bizarre. <laughs> and those listening, you know who you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm I just mean, letting like, you know, that is weird to me. Like okay. why you would go. I totally agree. <laughs> but anyway, so, okay. Uh, yeah. Great point. Uh, never had, yep. and that's right. kind of like a, I guess pseudo complication is just like not getting sample. I don't know. Like to me, this is just like this, this can happen. Like if, especially like if you have like densely scrotic bones, sometimes you'll, I don't know, for some reason, I think I one time did this. I had a dry tap on a patient who was like diffusely ridden with like metastatic disease, like sclerotic metastatic disease. 
And I think I had a dry tap. I've, I've probably had, I mean, just a little bit under double digits. I would say like eight to 10 in a eight year career. So not, not common, but it was, it was common enough to where like, I have like a kind of approach for it. So. Oh, you know what? I just realized when we were talking about the angle, we didn't really talk about what side we stand on and where we go. Like I, if the patient's prone, I'm standing on the left side and I'm going into the right posterior iliac spine, right? Yeah. Um, same. Yeah. That's just like my standard. And unless I see something on the CT, like they've had like a prior bone harvest, you know, but like a- Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, totally agree. Bone graft. Yeah. If they've, bone if graft they've been harvested. harvested for bone graft before, they might have a chunk yep. missing or something like that. Or mm-hmm. one side's like super demineralized, the other one's not. Or like you said, like one, if it's metastatic disease or something like that, one side looks better than the other. And then I decide that, but if it's just a run-of-the-mill standard anemia, bone marrow biopsy, I'm staying on the left, going to the right. And that's what we were talking about. Some people will stand on the left and go into the left so that they're angling towards them. Towards um, them. Yeah. Look, just like to each their own. Foot. I mean, I'm sure if I did enough like that, I would get used to it, but that just yeah. feels like exactly the opposite of what I want to do. Yeah. Especially if, if you're grinding manually like how that's so ergonomically awkward you it's know? like a terrible way to do things <laughs> okay so anyway all right so any other complicated i mean look you could you could get you could slip into the si joint which might cause some pain it's pretty benign procedure i mean you could have bleed excessive bleeding afterwards uh but you just hold pressure i mean anything else that could go awry with a bone marrow biopsy that you can think of yeah, I think the I think like you named it. I think like you can get into the SI joint. Maybe you can get into a sacral foramen. I think like the the worst thing that you can do is like blow through some bone, like some osteoporotic bone, and then end up in the pelvis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I think that's like pretty the, reckless. Like the doomsday scenario for this. Yeah. Um, you know, I know with like my approach, like I'm kind of like I'm pretty. I, mean, I wouldn't say aggressive, but like I, I consider my safe zone the lateral side. But like in the back of my mind, I mean, you know, you know that there are some arteries that kind of live back there that you could tag. But yeah, so I just think of like adjacent structures, you're pretty good, but you know, you have some arteries in there, you have some neural foramen like around the sacrum and then, but the real bad one I think is like you blow through osteoporotic bone and then you're in the pelvis and and that is like, you know, a terrible area to be in which a lot of high value real estate. And then, so procedure's over, you got a good sample, no complications, what's your post-procedure care when you send them? So- Right, we keep them for just about an hour, but basically, as soon as the anesthesia wears off, like we get them out the door. And so, you know, some people that's quicker than others, um, and some people it holds on a little bit longer. And so, just as as long as it takes them to like meet the nursing criteria for like uh, our regular moderate or standard moderate sedation, then they can leave. Like it's not the bone marrow. Like what I what I stress to people, it's not the bone marrow biopsy that keeps you here. Like if we just did the bone marrow biopsy, I think I'd turn them loose right out the door. Like the people who use local. We just let them go. But it's if you've had moderate sedation, then we hold on to you just until you meet our standard criteria, which I don't know off the top of my head, but basically it's like they're seeing assessment and they're like, all right, you can go. I do actually have like, like I think about like how to do the fastest bone marrow biopsy. Yeah. Okay. So this is, this is like the, like, this is like gotten me to where like, this is as streamlined as we ever got our, our system and that, so this is before like I'm in the room. So the patient is prone the grid is on the ct tech will scan the patient so your pre-scan is done i have the ct tech like and you have to work with these ct techs a lot 
um, but they will take the grid off. They will mark the patient like at the expected area that I'm going to go. So they'll pick the entry site and they show it to me. Like, so I walk in, they show it to me. If they're a little bit off by a centimeter, I don't remark it. I'm just like, all right, I might start a little bit more lateral or I might start a little bit more medial. I mean, CT techs, they see us do these all the time. So it's not like beyond them to find like a nice trajectory. And then the tray is already out. The lidocaine is already drawn up. And so it's like, boom, boom, boom. And then like, I just do that one scan, which I'm not even in the room for. And then the, you know, the bone marrow biopsy, it can be like under five minutes, you know, just like two or three minutes. It totally could. It totally could. Now, what throws a wrench in those gears is the sedation because a, you got to do a timeout before you start the sedation. And a lot of times in my, the hospitals I work at, the CT tech wants to do the timeout before they scan the patient. So that means you got to be there because I agree with you. It'd be amazing. And then, because then you could, you could basically walk in, confirm that they marked in the right spot, do the timeout real quick and then scrub and, you know, put the lidocaine in and by, you know, five minutes, the sedation should have started having effect, like, you know, within a couple of minutes, really. And then you're ready to go. It's just that whole timeout sedation, making sure they're sedated enough before you stick the needle in is the challenging part to speed it up, you know? Absolutely. Totally agree. But every now and then you have somebody who either is getting done under local or doesn't care that much because they have these done all the time. And they're like, you know, we have some patients that have had like five or six bone mirror biopsies. And like they want the sedation, but they're not overly worried about it. And so I give them a little cocktail beforehand. And then when they're getting in the room, like as soon as I walk in the room, we're doing the timeout, like all that's kind of happening concurrently. And I think if you so, give them a cocktail beforehand and they're already pretty sleepy, then that definitely, you could knock it out. Yeah. 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 Well, that's, um, that's but yeah, I, I agree that the, the slow part of the procedure is the sedation. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt. You know, I thought it would be a good extension of this conversation, which we do a lot of our bone lesions, but like more specifically spinal bone lesions. So almost like very, so, you know, like for, for either it'd be a, a, a disc space for, you know, discitis or osteomyelitis or a, for the, you know, or, and you, usually it's like an aspiration plus biopsy for that sort of thing, or just spine lesions for metastatic disease. We should do that conversation and it's not going to be a whole, it has its own nuances and, um, you know, different needles that you can use and so forth. So I think that would be a good second conversation beyond just, you know, and, and those can be challenging, right? Because of the anatomy. Yes. And actually, I think that could be a really, a really robust uh, podcast only because like my approach to discitis osteomyelitis, I do actually do those under fluoro. I bet Jacob, I bet he was taught to do his uh, disc biopsies with fluoro. It'll change. It's like life changing. I, I've loved it. Like, I mean, I like I was like, it took like, cause like getting into, especially a collapsed disc space under CT can be a little bit frustrating, totally. a little bit fussy. Yeah. But doing under fluoro, it's like. Oh, yeah, yeah. You can see beautiful. it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's probably like oh, you doing a kypho. You're just like. Exactly. This exactly. is so easy. You're exactly right. Compared yes. to yes. doing under it's CT. so easy. Okay. Awesome. Well, let's do that. We'll mark it. Okay. Cool. Uh, maybe Jacob would want to join us. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable MSK on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Jacob Fleming, and co-hosts Michael Barraza and Chris Beck. 
Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and show notes written by Marvi Espiritu and Anne Dang. Administrative support provided by Jun Roy Thanks again and see you next time.